from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. On this episode of Newt's World, I wanted to do an episode devoted to Chairman Comer's investigation of the Bidens and Hunter Biden's recent court hearing, which I have to say was one of the wilder things I've seen in a while. Uh, and then what we've learned from it. So I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Mike Howell. He is the director for the Oversight Project at the Heritage Foundation. Mike, welcome, and thank you for joining me on Newt's World. Hey, happy to be here. Thank you. So I'm curious about your own background. I mean, you have an interesting experience in security. So tell us about what you've already done in the area of security. Absolutely. So I'm an oversight attorney by training. I started out working for Senator Ron Johnson over on the Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee on the Senate. And then when Chairman Chaffetz took over for Chairman Issa in about 2014, I went over there with him. And we ran a lot of investigations into the Obama administration, particularly of the U.S. Secret Service, which was getting into a host of problems in those days, high-profile security incidents and lapses over and over again, a lot of politicization of the Obama administration's kind of investigative apparatus. We looked into Guantanamo Bay and their release of prisoners there. We looked into several Department of Homeland Security inspectors generals, resulting in a few being fired, actually, because of things we uncovered. And then when President Trump assumed the presidency, I went into the Department of Homeland Security to help deal with some of the ongoing investigations from Congress, which was really the epicenter for the first couple of years of Trump's border policies, causing a lot of outrage on the left. And then after leaving the Trump administration, I arrived at the understanding that the left is light years ahead of the right in terms of 
outside institutions and groups assisting in the investigative and oversight space. I mean, if you look what they did, the left to the Trump administration, they ginned up controversy for four years. I mean, they had the entire Department of Justice, the legal industry, the intelligence agencies, outside groups, et cetera. And so that's what we're building here, uh, the oversight project, an investigative function and a litigation function to start fighting back. And we've been able to do that with some great success most recently in advocating for what happened on Wednesday with Hunter Biden's plea deal being tossed. I'm a big fan of Heritage, and I worked with it starting back when Ed Fulner founded it. So I've watched the growth of Heritage and the degree to which it has really gathered together an amazing range of really talented people. Your oversight project is, I think, a very innovative approach. Talk to us just for a couple minutes about how is the oversight project conceptualized and how is it structured? Right. So the goal is to get as much information out there as possible. And the way we do that is we basically have two main functions, an investigative function, which is staffed by people with long histories in federal agencies, law enforcement, et cetera, that are really adept at using networks to gain information and then also advanced technological tools. We put out a study late last year where we tracked the movement of illegal aliens by getting their cell phone data. These are things and techniques that have been used by the federal government against us over and over again. And we're exploring the commercial investigative market to use the expanding data industry to help propel investigative findings. And, you know, the result of that study that we did where we found illegal aliens were being moved from nonprofits at the border to virtually every single congressional district in the mainland U.S. was that the House in H.R. 2, their big border bill, defunded it. And so that's kind of one of the examples of how we go out and gather information and turn it into legislative action. And then the other function is, and this is really a shame it has to exist, to be honest with you, is you have to litigate to get information out of the U.S. government. The freedom of information laws, both at the federal and state level, should really be a routine administrative function, especially with the growth of technology and the data retrieval. Instead, you need big organizations that have the ability to litigate to get information out. So while we're at about a thousand FOIA requests that we've submitted based off of investigative leads, we are litigating only about 30 with an aim to get to, you know, in between 50 and 100 for the year. And this is what you have to do if you want to get anything out of the Department of Justice or FBI. And one recent example here is as soon as Chairman Jordan sent a request for Weiss to turn over all the communications he may have had with Maine Justice about the scope of his authority to prosecute Hunter Biden. We requested the same thing via FOIA. They didn't send anything to Chairman Jordan. They completely ignored him. This is how oversight works now is the executive just ignores. And so we sued for the same thing in FOIA context and got into federal court in D.C. and forced the Department of Justice to admit that there are 2,500 plus pages of communications between Weiss and main justice and other districts about the Hunter investigation. So that's a lot of communications for a supposedly independent investigation. And we used that finding to go and approach the judge in Delaware, who was overseeing the plea deal, alerted her to the fact that she maybe sold a bill of goods about the supposed independence of this investigation and flagged her for her. A lot of the other issues that came out to play at the Hunter Biden plea deal hearing, which we were at, and we submitted a 800-page brief to her, laid it all out, and we're very thankful that she tracked in her reasoning our arguments in the brief and tossed this deal, which was an atrocity. So let me go back for a second. If there are 2,500 pages of documents that fit the particular FOIA request, are they still hidden? 
Yes, sir. So we sued and we asked for a preliminary injunction that says you got to get us this stuff before the plea hearing. A uh, judge in D.C. said, no, we're not going to do that for you, although they have granted similar requests for preliminary injunctions for all things Trump related, whether it's January 6th or the census. So you can see kind of the judicial dual standard for if it's a leftist requester, they'll get the stuff out fast. If it's someone you know conceivably on the right, they stonewall it. So we appealed. We're again shut down for the fast track. But these are still on the track to be produced. There's a production schedule being set where we'll get X amount of documents a month and then get those out to the American public and especially Capitol Hill, who really needs this because they haven't gotten a page out of DOJ on this yet. How many pages a month do you think they're going to release? So the standard production rate for FOIA cases is about 500 pages a month. So it could take up to five months. This request is already three months old. And so they've already gathered the material. They're just sitting on it. And you know exactly why they're sitting on it. If it was... Not explosive stuff. They would have handed it over to us if it was just press clippings and you know meaningless calendar invites. They would have said, let it go. When do you think you'll get the first 500 pages? We're pushing aggressively. It's my expectation that we'll start getting stuff next month. DOJ is going to fight us tooth and nail. I mean, look at where they're at now. They got caught red-handed in one of the most corrupt plea bargains of all time. They're, I don't expect them to willfully cooperate. So that's why we're seeking judicial intervention. But that's kind of our position to the court is they're already late on this. They already owe us this stuff. They've gathered it for us. It's a matter of transmission. And so that's what we're saying to the court is we want this all transmitted as fast as possible. Well, given the bias of the court, are they trapped by the law into eventually having to give you what you want? Or can the court also just stonewall you? The courts can be a problem. And we sue a lot in Washington, D.C., the federal district here, which is stacked not only with a lot of leftist judges, but judges that are by proximity to the administrative state, deferential to it. And so one thing we're doing at the Oversight Project is exploring other means of litigation at the state level and other districts and perhaps even the international level with other countries that hold these documents uh, on other unrelated issues. We have gotten a lot of documents this way out of the D.C. judicial system, particularly with stuff on Mayorkas. We were the ones who discovered that when Mayorkas went to the White House podium to blame the Border Patrol agents for whipping illegal alien Haitians, he knew that no whipping occurred. We sued and the judge forced DHS to turn it over to us. And so that's how this kind of works. But with this one in particular, since we're talking about things that are already being contemplated in the context of a potential impeachment inquiry of President Biden, this is going to be a fight. We bring this to Congress's attention, say you guys should follow up with a subpoena for this specific document set and are trying to hit this from all angles. Now, is a subpoena, because it also has to go through the court, is a subpoena more enforceable than a FOIA? That's a really good question. So I think my overall theory is congressional oversight's broken down because the power of Congress has atrophied so much, especially with, you know, living from CR to CR, they can't really exact budget consequences too frequently. And we're going to see that play out in this budget cycle. Will the appropriations that the House passes actually get through the Senate and come back with oversight consequences? I don't think so. So when Congress issues a subpoena, what they're essentially doing is asking the U.S. District Attorney for D.C. to enforce that subpoena. That district attorney here is Matthew Graves, who's one of the hardest left prosecutors there are. So he is likely to sit on it. This is what happened in Fast and Furious with Eric Holder. So with all this history and recognizing that Congress just hasn't been able to get the docs over the past couple of decades, unless it's from whistleblowers, we want to turn the FOIA legal process into that kind of function because it gets us into court faster it doesn't rely on a district attorney to decide whether to pass go or not, and we get a judge to decide. And so we'll take our chances. We think our chances are a lot better, and they've proven a lot better with the independent, quote-unquote, judiciary, 
versus a political process. And again, Congress also hasn't been willing to assert themselves fully. They haven't enforced a single subpoena yet, this Congress, not one. They've accepted accommodations for ignored subpoenas. But keep in mind, they floated holding Christopher Wray in contempt for not turning over the FD-1023 form. And then they let him off the hook at the last minute. Same thing for Anthony Blinken when they were going to hold him in contempt for not complying. They let him off the hook, too. And so Congress really isn't to date trying to enforce their full subpoena rights. And we are enforcing our full rights. Why is that happening? I mean, you have a pretty hardline Republican House. Why are they backing off? I think ultimately it is a political problem. And I think the caucus is not united on these issues. I think there are a lot of political reasons that a lot of members wouldn't vote for contempt resolutions. You saw when Christopher Ray went up and testified to judiciary a couple of weeks ago, he actually had some fans in the audience on the Republican side of the dais. And even with the floating of the Biden impeachment inquiry, leftist newspapers were able to produce quotes from middle of the road, I guess we'll be nice and say that, middle of the road Republicans who said, no way, they're not going to support an impeachment. We don't want to do an impeachment. And so I think Speaker McCarthy's in a difficult position with such a slim margin that is much more fractured at times on these really core issues than the public realizes. And so the votes aren't there as what I'm saying simply. And they haven't tried to call the vote yet on any of these issues to smoke people out. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Hi, this is Newt. In my new book, March the Majority, The Real Story of the Republican Revolution, I offer strategies and insights for everyday citizens and for seasoned politicians. It's both a guide for political success and for winning back the majority in 2024. March the Majority outlines the 16-year campaign to write the contract with America, explains how we elected the first Republican House majority in 40 years, and how we worked with President Bill Clinton to pass major reforms, including four consecutive balanced budgets. March to the Majority tells the behind-the-scenes story of how we got it done. Go to Gingrich360.com book and order your copy now. Order it today at Gingrich360.com book. When you saw the Hunter Biden plea agreement, what triggered your sense that there was something profoundly wrong? So the plea agreement was sealed. We had a pretty good idea of what was in it, and that was the theory we presented out to the judge. But I guess the first indication here was that after five years of investigation, they were charging him with two tax crimes and a gun charge. What the American people are focused on is the son of the vice president and now president running an international pay-to-play influence peddling scheme to the tune of tens of millions of dollars from foreign interests, some of whom are adverse to the U.S., you know, especially with the CCP. And so they weren't charging him for anything related to that. And he was pleading down to two misdemeanors and diversion for tax and gun charges. And so that's when we realized pretty quickly that this had the potential to be a Trojan horse plea deal. What they were going to do, what they tried to do, was in this plea deal for lesser offenses, give Hunter immunity for any future offenses. And we were given a hint to this as DOJ said when they announced the plea deal that there was ongoing investigations. So the question is, if there are ongoing investigations, why are you offering a plea deal now? You usually don't offer plea deals until the end of the investigation. And so we alerted the court to this fact that there was probably something in there that gave Hunter future immunity for any other charges. And that's exactly what was in there. And when the judge sniffed this out in person in the hearing, she asked Hunter Biden, if that provision giving you immunity for other things, such as FARA charges, foreign agent charges, would you accept the plea deal if that wasn't in there? And Hunter said, no, I wouldn't. And then the thing just fell apart at that moment. And there was pure panic in the courtroom. There was a lot of sidebar convos, people running back and forth, trying to figure out a way to get a deal done. The judge just wasn't going to accept such an absurd concept of plea down to some nothing misdemeanor and you're just like have future immunity for potentially a, a massive scandal that's never been seen in this country's history. One of the things I don't understand, apparently one of Hunter's lawyers the night before pretended to be a Republican lawyer to get some information or to get them to expunge the IRS whistleblowers from the record. I mean, isn't that an act of lunacy? It was a crazy series of events. So here's what happened. Somebody from Hunter's legal team called the court and said, we need to have the filing submitted by Chairman Jason Smith stricken from the record. It is an open dispute as to whether that person represented to be part of the Republican team, the Democrat team, what have you. Hunter's team says it was all miscommunication. It was a lower level employee. That's not true. It was a very senior, high level paid employee. It was actually got a very serious resume. But the fact is, the court was told to take down parts of Chairman Smith's brief. There were two briefs, one from us that went in first, a second one from Smith. Both briefs contained the whistleblower testimony that the House of Representatives obtained. Hunter's team was basically trying to say, you aren't allowed to include that because it contains tax information. But as you well know, 
the House Ways and Means Committee can vote to release that tax information. That's exactly what they did. So all this to say is Hunter's team was trying to get that stricken from the record so the judge couldn't see that the whistleblowers pointed out all the funny business, that there's political interference in the Hunter investigation. Now, playing this out, which is an interesting fact not a lot of other folks picked up on, is even if they succeeded in that harebrained scheme, which was an act of lunacy, the information still would have been in the court record because it was in our brief. So they wouldn't even achieve the outcome they wanted to. That's how poorly thought out this whole thing was. And I think it really set the tone for Wednesday. The judge was a no. I was extremely impressed with the judge. She was no nonsense. She knew her stuff. She was prepared all the way to the hill. She knew her stuff. And so her walking into that courtroom on a Wednesday after having to deal with that fire drill funny business, I don't think did the Biden team any favors. You were actually in the room, right? Yes, I was. So was it a lot different than you expected? It was. I mean, no exaggeration. One of the most exciting things I've ever seen in my life. And I've been in quite a few hearings. It took a lot longer than expected, which is always a good sign. It opened up with the judge moving methodically through a lot of things. And my first instinct was, oh, this is not going well for us at Heritage. We could lose this because it seemed to be like a methodical way to stick to form. Everything turned upside down after the judge got a bunch of admissions on the record from DOJ and Hunter and then asked them the really tough questions about the provision that granted global immunity. They also tried presenting the plea deal to her in an unusual form that precluded her actual review. And so you have this complete lunacy of a situation where you're in court asking the judge to approve a deal, but you essentially had DOJ and Hunter saying, your your role's to rubber stamp it. You're not even allowed to look at these questions. You're here just to say, go, pass, go, rubber stamp. And she didn't take kindly to that. So it was both this form and the substance of what they presented to her. And then as things started breaking down, and there was momentum switches over and over again, I would think we lost, we won, we lost, we won. It wasn't until the very end until she gaveled out where I could finally you know, let out a deep sigh of relief that we did win. But the palpable excitement that you saw, you had you know, attorneys jumping up and down, you had a lot of sidebars, you had looks of dejection, you had what I thought was a little too cozy of a relationship between Hunter's legal team and the DOJ. They were you know, chopping it up, being all chummy beforehand. It's supposed to be an American judicial system where you have adverse parties to each other. They're out there, they're supposed to be adverse. And it seemed to me, looking at this thing, they're on the same team. And that's where this is going. I think the next step here is, a corrupt bargain was presented to a judge. They tried to slip it past her. And she said, no. Now we got to look into this corrupt bargain. From outside looking in, DOJ and Hunter were on the same team. And that's why they all agreed to this corrupt plea deal to not only save Hunter, but to save Joe and others. And so that's where the hill goes next, I think. You got a whole cast of characters. It's not just Garland. It's Garland, Weiss, Biden, Christopher Ray, all in on this thing together. Do they very often think that you can submit a plea deal and not have the judge know what's in it? No, it was highly, highly unusual. And at several points, the judge asked the Department of Justice, is there any precedence for this? Do you have any authority to actually do this? Then several times on several different points. And they admitted, no, they don't. This is wild. You come in and say, we have a blank check here, which we're not going to show you, but we'd like you to approve it. That's exactly what happened. Didn't justice for some reason then pull back the blanket immunity? Yes. And that was when the deal fell apart, pretty much. That's when the momentum really shifted for the final time. But they agreed. Essentially, they wanted to keep the text of the deal the same. And they wanted to paper over it by coming to a verbal agreement that the text didn't mean what the text said. They told the judge, okay, we'll live with 
this not being in there in our verbal understanding, but we're going to keep it written in the plea deal. So we don't need to go back. We're not going to rewrite it. But we're telling you now, we will agree. We don't think it means what it says on the piece of paper. That was their like last ditch Hail Mary play. This was after they sidebarred huddle for 15 minutes. I think they just wanted to get out of that courtroom with the plea deal being signed off of, even if the record was muddied on that one point, because they knew there was no coming back after that in terms of saving the provision. So it was a ludicrous attempt to try to convince a federal judge that the writing she was signing off meant something different than what she was signing off on. And she just wasn't there to do that. I think, you know, this thing is blowing up right now with all the whistleblower testimony. And they were asking a federal judge to join their conspiracy, essentially, to be part of the corrupt bargain. And Judge Norieka wasn't willing to do that. Is that the point where she turns to Hunter and says, if this is out, are you still agreeing? Correct. It was after she asked Hunter that question, they sidebarred. And then what they came up with was telling the judge that they would believe the paper said something different than the paper said if she was willing to sign off on it. Are they now back trying to work out a new deal? Right. There are three options in descending order. Or will they go to trial? There is no way they go to trial. If they go to trial, Hunter's looking at multiple years in prison. That is anything within the sentencing guidelines. And a bunch of smart people right now are looking at the sentencing guidelines and probably will submit some more paper to the court saying that at the very least, you have to hit this minimum of a couple of years. They're working on that now. But the three options are, one, submit a new plea deal. But you got to understand the purpose of the plea deal was to give him immunity for the real big stuff. That's why they were in Delaware on Wednesday. So they aren't going to have him plead guilty if that's not in there. Okay, option number two, DOJ could drop the charges. They could say, we tried this, like this is going south, we're just dropping all charges. It would be a political hellstorm for the left, but with our media and propaganda outlets, they might just cover it up and just walk away from it and let the House go and yell about it and do that. The third option would be a pardon. Joe Biden could just pardon him for everything. Obviously, he promised he would not do that. Kareem Jean-Pierre said he wouldn't do it. But at the end of the day, he's looking at his son going to jail, potentially. And the pardon's the way that you guarantee that President Trump or whoever comes in next can't charge him again for this kind of stuff. So those are the three options, the three buckets, all have major implications. It seems to me that the people at one level would understand a pardon because you're the father and your kid's in a lot of trouble. But it also seems to me that all of this is just part of a sort of growing whirlpool of information. And you must find yourself every week dealing with all sorts of new sources, all sorts of new data, and seeing the dots on the wall beginning to come together. And in almost every case, the dot hurts the Biden case. I mean, is that a fair summary? It's an absolutely fair summary. And the way I kind of break this down for people, and this is my overarching theory on the corruption here in D.C., is that... Biden and his family saw this as an elite rite of passage, and they looked at what the Clinton Global Foundation was able to do and the Clintons, how they were able to amass large amounts of wealth in a very sophisticated way. They were, to their terrible credit, sophisticated in getting themselves very rich. And then you see Barack Obama, who has Netflix and other just corporate America backing up the Brinks trucks for them. And you have Joe Biden, who wants in on this. He thinks he deserves it. It's a rite of passage for the big guys. And- his problem was he wasn't sophisticated. He had Hunter Biden doing this stuff and he had him doing it in some of the sketchiest corners of the world. And so that's what's unraveling right now. They haven't even proffered an example as to what the Biden family business was even selling. Okay. It's not like they've come out and said, oh, we were selling, you know, widgets over in Ukraine or we were selling, you know, timeshares. No, it's obviously an influencing peddling operation. 
And you set up 20, you know, at least shell companies, LLCs. And then what really blew this open is Chairman Comer. Give him a ton of, ton of credit. He did the one thing we asked, you know, and suggested that they do, and that's get the bank records. This is what the January 6th committee did. They got bank and cell phone records. They kind of showed that congressional oversight can get in that space. And so Comer got in that space. And he literally provided the receipts for this money flowing in to the various Biden shell companies. There's a couple other investigative steps that need to be taken. For example, Joe, we know for a fact the exact burner email address he was using and his burner cell phone. Heck, John Solomon called him on his burner cell phone once. We've been pushing to have the Hill actually you know, expand their investigation, get those cell phone records, those email records, because that's where this is going. It's about showing the interaction between Biden and his, you know, his son in these business dealings to which we're going to hear testimony, I think July 31st, from Devin Archer, Hunter's business associate, who will say that Joe was on the phone with a lot of these business conversations with Hunter. Although I noticed today there was a little pushback suggesting in the Washington Post or somewhere that Devin will say that Joe did not directly participate in any of the deals. I've read the same reports, but this is still a massive leap forward in that it places Joe on the phone. Why did he think he was on the phone with the Ukrainian area code? From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. If you're writing a novel and you have money coming to Hunter Biden, who clearly is the bag man, I mean, nobody's paying Hunter Biden as Hunter Biden. And you have Kazakhstan, Romania, Ukraine, Russia, and China, all as sources of money. This is so obvious that if Biden were a Republican, the Post and the New York Times would have destroyed him. Where are Woodward and Bernstein at this point? Because the elite media is doing everything it can to minimize this case, and the case just keeps growing despite them. But the one I find the most interesting, he gets $3.5 million from the widow 
of the mayor of Moscow. Now, I mean, you have to sort of ask yourself, under what circumstance would she have decided to send him? And apparently it's an energy deal. But that one fact alone, I mean, Hunter Biden getting three and a half million. I mean, I don't know if he ever even met her, but it was some kind of deal. I mean, don't you just find that the total range of contacts and the total volume of money is almost beyond dispute? It absolutely is. I mean, it is what it looks like. There is no legitimate reason for any of this money to come in in any of these functions. And no excuse has even been proffered by either the left and their media organizations or the Biden family and their handlers because they know it is what it looks like. And the American people fundamentally understand that there's no good reason to be getting money from these corners of the world if you're a leading U.S. politician, if not the most powerful person in the country. And so I think the American people fundamentally understand this. And you make an interesting point about the media and their role in this. They're part of what's under investigation in my mind. What they did in terms of the interference into the 2020 election and their continued political just overtness, they're on the other team. There is no case to be made that they're some neutral observer of independence and in journalism. We see the continued leaks of classified information even through the media. I mean, during the Trump administration, this is a near daily occurrence. They're part of the investigation, whether we like it or not. I know that raises some First Amendment questions, but New York Times, they've blown us up at the oversight practice a couple of times with some drive-by hate pieces, and frequently they ask for comments. But, you know, as a matter of practice, we're investigating the New York Times. We're investigating the Washington Post and their connections to the administration. They're under investigation by us, and I think they should also be under investigation by Capitol Hill. To what extent should this also lead back to the Clinton Foundation as sort of the forerunner? There's actually much more money and much more direct ties. The Uranium One deal, where the Russians got 20% of our uranium and magically the Clinton Foundation got $35 million is probably as clear an example of fundamental violation of the system as I can imagine. It's always struck me as odd that we've never gone after their records and subpoenaed their documents and understood their cash flow and then tied the dates back to public policy decisions because it seems to me that they're very blatant. Am I missing something? No. So the problem is a lack of political will to do that. I mean, when you had John Durham come up and testify to the Judiciary Committee, he admitted that he didn't even bring, you know, Hillary Clinton in under oath. He didn't subpoena the relevant things related to Hillary Clinton. And you had members on the Republican side saying, why didn't you do that? Why didn't you do that? And I'm sitting there yelling at the TV, why don't you do that? You can do that. They won't touch it. They won't touch it. But how this fits, I think we're going to have a large national conversation and reckoning with corruption. We're living through the peak of American corruption, in my view. It's become so normalized. And they view it as an elite rite of passage. And Biden may be one of the more flagrant examples and the sloppiness of it, but it's still, you know, the Clinton Foundation, a lot bigger. So we're going to have to have a national reckoning and conversation about the fact that we have lost control of ethical conduct in our institutions. It is a joke that politicians come here and all leave richer. They all do. Look how Nancy Pelosi did it in the most flagrant of fashion. An American you know, constitutional republic shouldn't work that way at all. And I think the common everyday American is absolutely sick of seeing this leadership class just self-enriched, self-deal. And when Biden, if he goes down for all of this, I hope what follows is a deep reform, not only of the systems, but of also the principles and public expectations. It seems to me that we should expect and insist that the Republican House actually reopen the whole experience, which is really an Obama administration of experience. I mean, 
It's Hillary as Secretary of State. It is Biden as Vice President. I've also thought that there are actually two parallel corruptions. There's the corruption of the politicians, the Bidens and the Clintons, the sort of crime families. But then there's also the corruption of the entire institution of law enforcement. And that both of those tracks need to be followed very aggressively and with great determination. You're absolutely right. And the House had an opportunity to position themselves to do this that they did not take. That was the establishment of a church committee. A lot of us on the right and people in, in my world were calling for such a thing because we knew, you know, as a former staffer who worked on a committee, there's only so far that you can go with the limited resources that you have. We can't have a House of Representatives in the most corrupt time in American history that's situated in the same construct that it has been for decades, where you basically have like three to five chairmen with actually going after this stuff. And then everyone else has no authority and there's limited staff. We wanted to see a church commission, you know, to go back to the 1970s, where they brought in 150 former prosecutors, intelligence folks, professors, historians, detectives, what forensic auditors, et cetera, and to really staff the House of Representatives and structure it in a way where they could actually go on deep dives in many different places. And they just can't do that right now. They aren't situated to do this. I mean, the January 6th committee, for all of its warts and how awful and terrible I thought it was, they did try out that principle of that model of supercharging the functionality of it. And that's what we needed to do. And we did not do that. And I think as this stuff breaks, you're going to see increased calls from those on the right to start supercharging the House. I mean, they can do this. It'll upset the apple cart in that you'll have people outside the line for committee gavels getting more authority. But this is what the country needs right now. They need a true investigative function out of the House of Representatives because we can't rely on federal law enforcement anymore. Well, let me ask you one last thing, which is I've been puzzled as I listen to McCarthy or Scalise or Jim Jordan or Comer. They use extraordinarily strong language about the corruption of the Justice Department in the way they're going after Trump and the degree to which this is a totally politicized process that violates the rule of law and violates the Constitution. But if that's true, doesn't the House have it within its power to simply refuse to fund it as of September 30th? 100%. They can pick and choose which investigative functions use specific appropriations language to defund those operations that they so chose. Another thing they can do, and this is something a lot of folks have been exploring, is they got the power to grant immunity in exchange for testimony. So you remember Oliver North was granted immunity in exchange for his congressional testimony. So my question is, why is the Hill not offering that immunity to President Trump and others in exchange for their testimony to basically thwart any of these weaponized prosecutions? Then at that point, the House itself can offer the immunity, right? Yes, sir. With a civil majority vote. That's very useful. I had not thought about that, but that makes a lot of sense. I'm confident we're going to ask you to come back because this thing is going to continue to unfold and continue to go down trails that people couldn't quite imagine. And I want all of our listeners to know that they can go to heritage.org and they can look at the oversight project where you keep putting more and more material out. I think as director of the Heritage Foundation's oversight project, you're one of the key intersections in what I think will turn out to be the largest scandal in American history in a moment where we really do decide whether we're just going to decay into a corrupt third world style authoritarian system or whether we're going to go back to being a constitutional republic with the rule of law. So the work you're doing, I think, Mike, is extraordinarily important. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Thank you to my guest, Mike Howell. 
You can learn more about the Heritage Foundation's oversight project at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Work. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX, now playing, and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.